0: You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Activia. Activia offers a range of yogurts that help support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins.
1: Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry.
0: Folks, welcome to the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. Um, Every now and again, we get a guest on the show that I have admired, uh, that I've wanted to meet or wanted to see speak, and I get a little bit starstruck. And on today's episode, it's one of those. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by somebody who I think is going to provide uh, almost the ultimate motivation um, for you uh, when you listen to his story. I took this off his Twitter feed last night. It's a quote that I suppose he lives by. And I'm going to open the, uh, open the interview with this. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Mark Pollock, welcome to The Real Health Podcast. How are you?
1: Great. Great to be here. and Thanks for that introduction. Great yeah, guy. the pressure's on. I feel bit, I'm feeling a bit nervous. I'm, a, I'm available for <laughs> meetings at any stage. Freely available.
0: <laughs> Tell me about that quote Because I know when i was doing some research over the last day or two, and Dara, my producer, was doing a little bit of research, that quote came up several times. Mm. And I know it's very much a mission by which you live your life. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about that, about the the quote and the power of it um, and what it means to you, I suppose.
1: Yeah, well, I came across the, the quote in a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which is... World War Two concentration camp book. You know the the grimmest of backdrops, um, and this guy survived the the experience. And in the book, he he quotes Nietzsche, which is the quote you mentioned: "He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how." And it just seems to sit over everything that I've experienced over the last throughout my life really the good the good stuff and the bad stuff challenges whether you choose them whether they choose you sitting over the top of all of that is is this idea if you know why you're doing what you're doing and it makes sense to you then you can put up with all the tough stuff that is like setting yourself a really massive goal like in my case going to the South Pole you know we knew it was going to be cold it was awful at times but it really mattered and we really wanted to go. So we raised the money, we put up with the hardship, we spent 16 hours a day on skis dragging sledges. And it it seems to be an equally applicable quote whenever you, I applied it to my own uh, loss of sight and more recently to my uh, breaking my back and, and becoming paralyzed. It just seems to be that idea of, uh, if you know why you're doing what you're doing, all of the tough stuff uh, seems to make sense.
0: Well, I suppose it gives you a reason to get out of bed. It yeah. gives you a reason to function. It yeah. gives you a reason to... It gives you meaning to work towards something, whether it is that South Pole where you have to go and raise all the funds and t- contact the companies and get the sponsors and do all the really hard stuff as well as the physical component to it, which is the, you know, the training, obviously, and the fitness that, that comes with it.
1: But, yeah, but but I don't... I, so... I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm listening to what what I what I just answered. I see, the he has a way to live and bear with almost anyhow. In a sense, necessarily has hardship built into it. So I don't get out of bed every morning, uh, jumping for joy necessarily. <laughs> sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. The projects, even the really good ones, uh, that I'm involved in. Aren't always plain sailing. They're often difficult, and I suppose uh, it's almost a hardship. I kind of uh, I, I expect problems. <laughs> I'm mean, sort of Mister Misery. I expect problems while I'm exploring possibilities, and it's that it's that guiding principle of why that's so so important.
0: But that's very much the realism component. Mm of life. I know we're chatting. We may differ here on this, Carl. We well I, I think you tell it <laughs> the truth. I kind of sometimes, you know, sugarcoat it in terms of everything's fantastic. It's all yeah. brilliant. It's wonderful. Yeah. No matter what yeah. happens, it's brilliant. I have a client who's, you know, they might lose weight, but it's brilliant. Um yeah. where I think from watching your TED talk uh last night, realism is a huge th- it is that that it, you know what? It is tough. Mm. Sometimes things are shit. They're yeah. just not you know, but yeah. that's almost part of with that comes hope with the realism comes a, a component of hope as well
1: yeah well i th- I, I think this is the I and mean, maybe i can explain a little bit of where where i've sort of come across this cuz I, I i seem to be attracted by stories of hardship or crucible moments so there's the the victor frankl experience in in concentration camps and, and other others like him but i also then came across a, a story of an Admiral Stockdale who it, it, was just, it was just a little story in in a bigger leadership book called Good to Great by Jim Jim Collins business, business and leadership book but uh, Admiral Stockdale was a, a, a POW at the height of the Vietnam War incarcerated, tortured over 20 times, didn't know if or when he was going to get out and uh, his circumstances were appalling but he He had studied stoic philosophy before he was captured and he he managed to confront the brutal facts of of his current circumstances were by all you know, all reasonable measures awful but he he maintained a faith that he would prevail in the end and i don't think you know i don't think he was defined as a realist in that book um but I've come to call him or, and think of him as a realist because he he seemed to balance this really honest position of how awful it was, but being very, very hopeful for for the future, maintaining faith that he would prevail in the end. So I, in fact, think that the liberating place to live is as a realist. You know, If you're overweight or if you're underweight or if you're just right, all of these things are facts, but they're just starting points for Whatever you hope to be in the future, that's the realists manage to have that real harsh acceptance and the Pol- Pollyanna hopeful <laughs> side to them as well. It's both, and I find that liberating. I find it, um, I find uh, I'm nervous whenever I'm thinking everything's going brilliantly here because I'm just one step away from a disaster or failure. And
0: you've had incredible tests of that character strength and that realism um, just fill our listeners in a little bit about about those two the two events the first obviously in your 20s yeah
1: yeah. so uh, maybe maybe this will explain why I think as I do now um, I think the, the two the two things that you mentioned have certainly informed how I view the world and in 1998 20 years ago now I things were going really well for me I was about to graduate with a business studies and eco- economics degree, I was going to go off and start a job in London, and and I was rowing for the university, and also, I'd rowed a sort of junior level in for Ireland. I was breaking into the senior well, setup, so things were going really well. And in the space of two weeks, I, I lost my sight in in my one good eye. I had lo- detached retinas, uh, but it wasn't inevitable. Didn't didn't think. I was going to go blind or anything and in the space of two weeks I went from that person sort of on my way somewhere to back up at home in the bedroom I grew up in facing into this new world of of being blind and did you did you know that that was going to happen uh no I I didn't but I had bad eyes I I was born very short-sighted I had to avoid all contact sports I wasn't allowed to play rugby or cricket or soccer any of these that, that my school played so I really wanted to compete and thankfully I was able to do that in in sailing and rowing but it wasn't you know lots of people are wear glasses or short-sighted uh get the odd bang in the head even have detached retinas and they're they're fixed but uh I I don't know whether mine were particularly bad or not it wasn't inevitable and they ended up just they ended up happening very very quickly so i didn't know about talking computers uh, i didn't know anything about guide dogs couldn't couldn't learn braille you know i'd never held a white stick i'd only you know I, i'd only done what lots of people do in the street you know there's a guy coming down tapping with a white stick and you sort of someone sees him at the last minute and it's this sort of comedy uh, arms and legs all over the place trying to avoid them so i didn't know any blind people didn't have any of the skills and then suddenly you know suddenly i was one of them uh, and continue to be so so i had to really start from scratch again and, and try and try and find a place in the world as a blind person and i i, I think also a lot about identity and you know who we are who we are who we feel we are who we maybe how the people around us see who we are and and I didn't kind of realize how important my identity as a rower and a student and someone who was on their way to a great job I didn't realize how important that was until it was all gone and then I had to try and find a way back to well not back to that old identity but rather create a new one and where where does one even begin
0: to to process that? To go within the space of two weeks from having prospects in terms of the move to London from being mm. ultra competitive to being back home for a lot of people listening in, myself included. I don't even know where you begin to rebuild from there. How does the where does the rebuilding process start?
1: Yeah, and look, I'd be. Do you know sometimes if you tell if, if you sort of. If you talk about yourself a lot, as I do, uh, suddenly there, uh, your life becomes just a storied version of your life, and it, it's not necessarily true. So I was, what I I was about to just rattle off, well, you know, you go blind, and <laughs> then you set yourself a goal, and away you go. You know, it didn't work like that. I think really for the first four years after blindness, I was, I was guided by. Uh, a desire to rebuild or reestablish my old identity I had to get a job I had to go back and study even though it wasn't much of a studier in my day Um it is better when I went blind actually as it turns out but uh, I went and did a masters I got a job uh, here uh, in Dublin and I also got back into the boat I was able to go back rowing and and race with guys I used to race with and, and compete in the able bodied um, rowing circuit, and I went on one silver and bronze medals in the Commonwealth Games. But that was all driven, the guiding principle, the why was a re establishing of my old identity, not, uh, you know, didn't sit down with a, a goal sheet and say, right, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then I'll be all right after that. Um, and I think. Going back to the to the very early days in, in in hospital and in at home, I only found this out much later. But there, there's there's a woman a professor doctor called Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and she has this whole book on death and dying. Another you know there's a red thread that runs through all my uh, all my areas of interest here, death <laughs> and dying. But she talks about when when someone has a a a terminal illness and people around that person they both suffer from or go through stages i suppose the denial the anger uh, anger and blame i think it's called bargaining whenever you know you you pray to a god that you never knew you believed in um and then eventually you you have a lot of self-pity or depression and then some kind of resolution at the end of it, some kind of acceptance. So I went through all of those, not in that order, but going blind, not being able to see, but not believing it was true, uh, being angry, frustrated, impatient, uh, praying to that God that I didn't know I believed in until, you know, until that didn't work and then suddenly I didn't believe again. And then I obviously felt really down and and eventually, I found myself in a in a place of acceptance um, and looking forward, rather than being in that kind of messy, uncertain, uncertain bit. And how long did it take you to get to that point? Uh, probably. So the from April to July of ninety eight, I was having operations. I was in this. I was blind but no one had told me I was blind yet. You know, there was, st- there was still a chance. And really in in July that year, I was given the final word that they couldn't do anything more for me. And for about two weeks, I didn't know what to do, but I found out about a, a computer course where I could learn to use a computer that talks back to me. And I figured if, if I could use a computer and then write a letter, um, I don't even think I'd, considered putting a CV together but if I write could write an application letter for a job uh, I might have a chance uh, I don't know how this all formed in my head but um, it was even before it was kind of before the email so I would have had to type the letter print it out get a job and in some ways I thought that if I could get a job then I could move forward in life I could earn earn my own money I could mm. be independent I could live on my own and then course the studying and the and the rowing came some way down the line so i got a job what february february after so eight or nine months and i was living my on my own back here in the the safety of dublin uh so living on my own getting a job walking around independent with my guide dog larry gave me a sense of of independence and i Mm -hmm. think it was around about you know, it took probably a year to start that real sense of independence, and and you know, it didn't happen overnight. I didn't feel, I didn't feel grand overnight, but it was a process. It probably took ten years, but it got easier and easier and easier. And really, the the South Pole at the end of that ten years was a big moment to put the blindness behind me.
0: And that's my next step. Uh, so. Once you got your identity back, I suppose, Dublin, job, mm. uh, apartment, um, then you decided to do lots of ultra, not just fitness events mm. event or a fitness races or a health races, but ultra. And it is, A, I think
1: that's the rower in you. Rowers are always bonkers. They're oh, mad. Uh, well, you see rowers are mad. <laughs> are mad. <laughs> well, you see, we also, I mean, I don't want to speak for for all of them, but a lot of, of rowers uh, have... You know, they really would have liked to be able to cat, kick or catch a ball, and they <laughs> end up in rowing, trying to prove a point. I mean, if you've ever at a at a rowing regatta, you should go down and have a look. One day, at, uh, anywhere around Ireland, quite often a few rowers will get together and you know throw a ball around or kick a, a ball around. I mean, it's not a pretty sight, <laughs> zero coordination. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think rowers appear in triathlons. Uh, they appear in an adventure races. We are a. Uh, we're a particular breed. Anywhere I've done something long. So I've done Ironmans, I've done
0: ultra marathon races, I've done uh Racer in Ireland, bike races. Yeah. Uh I've always met a rower. Yeah. Always. Yeah, and yeah. they're always the maddest ones <laughs> yeah. in the whole event. They just they're bonkers. <laughs> so you went and did lots of this kind of stuff. You did the Gobi Desert. It was was it six marathons in seven days? That's right. In the desert, in the Searing Heat, uh South Pole, like ultra stuff that, that that so few people would even contemplate. Um where does the or where did the drive for that come from?
1: Well I think as a rower, yeah, you know, we were we were training we were trained twelve times a week as amateur club guys. Twelve. Yeah. A week. Yeah. And like long distances and mixing and weights and so on. So I was it gives you a great sense of connection with your body. And I I go back that that's what I had before I lost my sight. That's what I lost when I lost my sight to sort of just not feeling like I was in charge of my own body anymore. And then I got back into the rowing, uh, you know, got to the Commonwealth Games and then went on and started doing these races. And I just, as a rower, had a great sense of uh, that my body and mind probably, probably could take these things on. So I had a sense, I had a confidence that I, that I was in the mix, that I, that I could be one of those Mm ultra-endurance guys and and of course the first marathon I ever did was in the in the Gobi Gobi March day one of six marathons in, in a week <laughs> the first so,
0: uh, as you do of course you wouldn't uh, the, the first marathon is in the gobi desert uh, yeah. in the searing heat in the and the first of six marathons yes. uh, the, the average person might go and do one in like i don't so, know dublin or london or
1: you so, you, so you you got to start you got to start questioning whether your confidence <laughs> is arrogance you know and i was questioning that very early on uh, you see at the, uh, before we started that race i was doing it with another rower called nick wolf and uh, by the time we by the time we got to, to Beijing, it was in northwest China, but Nick was looking around at the other competitors and he was sort of saying to me, hey, you know, I think we could win this. I think we could win this. <laughs> so we, we went off the start line and about 10 minutes in, I said to Nick, how are we doing? And we were like dead last, <laughs> dead last out the back. So, uh, yeah, we got a rude awakening.
0: Um, one of the things I think... Th- I've often questioned about people who did long distance events, myself included. Um, when I've done them, I've generally done them at times of, of stress, pressure, that uh, life is pretty full on mm. and it gives me it gives me something to distract me mm. from everything else I don't really want to think about or talk about or focus on because all my focus goes into the next race and the next big event and it's so mental that it, it, it becomes all encompassing. Mm. Do you think, in your own case, that that was that there was an element of that to doing these events that it was not running away from, but the distracting from everything else around you?
1: Um, it. No, I'm probably going to answer the, I'm probably going to answer this and not answer your question, <laughs> but I do have a a view on this thing because I when I did my first Gobi Desert race, uh, I was about. I don't know. It was maybe about twenty twenty six, and I would worked in a couple of jobs after going blind. I'd gone to the Commonwealth Games, so got my medals in the Commonwealth Games. Handed in my master's thesis, and the company I'd worked for um, went bust about six months earlier. So I had, I suddenly entered this period in two thousand and two, where I didn't really, didn't really have have anything to do, and I had to work out. Okay, well, look, I've rebuilt my identity. What do I do next? And the adventure racing came up as a, uh, and endurance racing came up as a, an out and out challenge. And then I started speaking to companies. I could, you know, couldn't believe. I went and stood in for a a blind guy who did adventure races. A guy called Miles Hilton Barber, and I went and stood in at a doing a corporate talk that he couldn't do. And I and I spoke about overcoming challenges and going to the Commonwealth Games. Then I did the the Gobi Desert, and. I started doing it. I went to the North Pole, did the North Pole Marathon, uh, and I started doing these races very much for the right reasons, as a challenge, uh, not sure whether I'd succeed or, or fail. And then that fed my speaking business. But what happened after a couple of years of doing them was I knew I could do a marathon, I, could, I knew I could do an ultra marathon, and I started to enter races, particularly the Everest Marathon. I went and did that because that year I'd, I hadn't got anything to do and I'd become this adventure athlete mm-hmm. who got paid to talk about it. And so I figured, well, I've, I've got to do what we'll do. We'll do the lowest race, <laughs> foot race in the world, the Dead Sea Ultra. And then a month later, we're going to do the highest foot race. But I wasn't fit enough. I was I was about, I was probably you know, 10, 12, 14 kilos overweight I was dialing it in. I hated every moment of the Everest uh, marathon. We trekked up for two two weeks, and uh, a couple of weeks, and then did a marathon back down. And we kept meeting loads of Irish people on the way up who were on their sort of life's journey. <laughs> and I was hating every step. Got back and uh, just didn't, just had no contentment. In fact, I had a massive, big dip after that into 2007. And I suppose what coming back to some way to answer your question, I got it for a period. I got it all wrong. The speaking was dictating what races I was doing, yep. rather than doing the races because I wanted to go for that and I wanted to fully commit, and and that's what fed into the decision to go and do the South Pole race. It wasn't, it wasn't a get, it wasn't to get away from it. It wasn't to fuel my speaking business. But of course, it definitely did.
0: It became part of your identity. Correct. You were the guy who did all the, you know, the, who did these amazing uh, races, and I suppose it just became part of what part of what you what you did. But well, it was
1: for the right reason. I think the important thing was it was it was a standalone goal for the right reasons to challenge myself, to push myself, and you know, hopefully to put the demons of blindness behind me. I think the problem is if you are running away from something. Uh, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if it gets mixed up, they're hard enough on their own. Your likelihood of likelihood of failure is huge. Uh, and I, I've never found, found training good for the head, mm-hmm. but and some of the race is good for the head, but only if you're doing it for the right reasons. Because eventually
0: the demons catch the, catch
1: up with you. Absolutely.
0: Um, folks, you're listening to the Real Health Podcast in association with Play of Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Mark Pollock. Um, so then the second challenge in your life came along. This wasn't an event.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's why I said earlier on I've come to expect problems as, I, as I'm exploring possibilities. You see, part of the whole... I mean, part of... Sometimes whenever I'm... Yeah, I said earlier on I'm talking about my story, it, it, it had become... what was on my website adventure athlete and speaker and uh, but part of the rebuild of my identity was was actually going out with my mates uh, meeting girls and part of the meeting meeting girls uh, experiment was I decided I was going to learn how to dance Um, and I was quite you know I was pretty fit at the time doing all these races and I was Absolutely exhausted doing dancing. Have you ever danced? It's so... One Christmas,
0: I, one Christmas, I, we were down in West Cork, we have a, yeah. a place down there, my family do, and we watched a Strictly Come Dancing Christmas oh, yeah. special. And I sat there, and I was like, oh my God, I'd love... My girlfriend, my, 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 at that time, my fiancée was with me, yeah. and I said, I'd love to learn how to dance. Yeah. How hard can it be? I run marathons, I yeah. just did 100-mile race, or whatever. I'm really fit. So I, I, I rang this woman in Cork City, and she, I said... You know, a dancing school. Great. Look, I say I'm off for two weeks over Christmas. I'd love to do an intensive boot camp for to learn how to dance. She said, "Great, you come in for half." And I said, "No, no, I run marathons. I'm very fit. You know, I I want to do like an intensive one for like days on end." <laughs> and she said, "Well, come in for half an hour." I said, "No, no, you're not getting it. Like, you know, I'm I'm not your average student." Within twenty minutes, mm. I never forget it. I couldn't put I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. My head was fried, my body was fried, everything just hurt. And mentally, and, and it was it's so difficult. Yeah. It is. and every time I watch Strictly, I have incredible respect for them because it's so hard to yeah. do. No yeah. matter what your fitness levels are, it's incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, really, it really is. And and I, and I I found that um, anyway. I I I wanted to, I wanted to learn how to do it because I'd spent. I was doing a talk in Miami trying to get my speaking business up and running and I, and I went to this club called Mango's Tropical Cafe and there are all these... I was actually with Nick Wolf that I did the Gobi Desert with and he was describing all these girls and some uh, older guy in his 60s, black shirt, black trousers, dancing with two girls on the bar, you know, spinning them <laughs> around and all this. And and we uh, we couldn't talk to any of them, you know, no matter how many margaritas we had. And we said, the only reason is because we can't dance. So we, we came back to Dublin and... I couldn't do the follow my leader classes so, so I met uh, a, fr- a friend of a friend. Uh, she was, she'd been in Madrid for a couple of years and, and she'd been in the salsa clubs and she'd learned, learned how to dance and offered, I contacted her and she offered to teach me how to dance and that girl uh, turned out to be Simon who after learning how to dance and going for drinks afterwards we eventually fell for each other and, and started going out with each other. and. During the whole, she was a great support during the whole South Pole thing. And when I was in the South Pole, you're in this kind of meditative state, 43 days, 16 hours a day, reviewing your life and you know, all, all past girlfriends, future potential girlfriends that you've never met. I think, you know, this girl, Sivan, is amazing. So I, I got to the end of the trip and the guy, some of the experienced polar guys, said, look, most of you will have decided during this 43 days to leave your job, leave your wife, leave your husband, you know, uh, move country, get married. Don't, when, don't do it when you get off the plane back wherever you've come from. Wait for a few months. So I did and I asked Simon to marry me and she, she said yes, eventually. And uh, we were due to get married at the, at the end of July in 2010. And a month before our wedding, I was in England at a, at a rowing event, Henley Royal Regatta. And on the second night, I was b- back in the house and i i the next thing I know was I was on the ground outside two stories below where i where i where I should have been safely uh, safely in bed so uh, the wedding didn't happen um and we spent the next sixteen months in in hospital dealing with a fractured skull and bleeds in the brain and Massive internal injuries, and of course, no m- movement or feeling from my stomach down. So you fell out of
0: the window mm. uh, and dropped two floors.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, the the question is, how did it how did it happen? I mean, no, I don't know. Nobody knows, but I suspect what happened was I probably got up to go to the bathroom, and I used to feel along the wall with my hands, you know, as a blind person to find the way. And that particular night, I uh, my hand found a, a an open window, I think, where the closed one should have been, and I uh, I just cartwheeled out. So, thankfully, my friends were actually outside, and I they were having a drink, and and I landed beside them. They they didn't didn't see me, didn't know what had happened, and I started to. Uh, they actually got me breathing. They got the, my tongue out of the back of my throat. They stabilized me, and uh, and then I started to realize what what was happening. But it was it was it was a wild experience, and it's a it's a wild memory to to even speak out loud. I can I can't even fathom to imagine. Yeah. So. So it kind of led on to just this terrible period of, of uncertainty um, and then an even worse period of finding out about what paralysis, the impact of paralysis uh, what it really means because it's not just a lack of feeling and movement, it is all these secondary problems, infections, nerve pain, spasms and lots of people have time in hospital, pressure sores Cardiovascular problems. You know, ultimately, lots of lots of people get uh, diabetes from uh, from the system being compromised mm-hmm. and diets an issue and lack of access to exercise and all this stuff. And of course, seven out of ten never work again, and four out of ten live below the poverty line, and that's in this country. And I entered into this. All, you know, all of the same things, work, study, uh, sport, relationships, family, friends, all these things that I had tackled after going blind kind of reappeared question marks over all of them as I lay there in, ho- in hospital trying to, trying to make sense of, of what was going on. And one of the earliest conversations you had at that time
0: was with your now fiancé. And I know early on you gave her a very specific piece of advice that thankfully she didn't take.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was very it was very early on because I was in I ended up on the Saturday morning after the the accident happening on happening on the Friday night, and I ended up on the Saturday morning in Stoke Mandeville in England. And Simon was in Dublin and she she'd actually been swimming on uh Kalani Beach, the night before, and then had gone for for a few drinks with her friends, and was staying at her sister's house. And she got the call that that I, something was wrong, and she needed to uh, get to England. And she, so she arrived as she described, with sand and seaweed in her hair, uh, into intensive care by by my bed. And one of the very first things I said to her after you know, after crying and. I couldn't even hug her she couldn't hug me just after touching her hand um was that that she really needed to get away from this that uh, that she hadn't bought in she'd bought into the blindness but she hadn't bought into this and and I she describes it that I was trying to dump her in <laughs> intensive care um and it and it's it difficult for me to remember because it was so high on morphine but <laughs> I think what I was, I think I was probably talking about myself. If I could run away from what was happening, I would. And I think I was saying to her, you've got a chance to do it and you need to to do it. Of course, she didn't. Thankfully, she didn't. Uh, She stayed and remains uh, with me and very very much a a partnership side by side in our efforts to cure paralysis in in our lifetime.
0: So talk to me about that then, trying to cure paralysis. Mm. And I'm fascinated by the exo, uh, yeah. the exo seat, to yeah, yeah, say yeah. the least, and even more fascinated by the story at which, not just content with that, you try to, to merge it and you brought all of these experts together. And it. so often in life, and the more people I meet, both on the podcast and generally in work, that sometimes it just takes an instigator mm. to make incredible things happen. Mm. Whether it's on a sports team, putting a team together. And we mm. all watch those, you know, and, and hear those movies uh, with, with the you know, the inspirational managers and they put, you know, that it can often just take one person, one person in that cog to create um, amazing things. Mm. And watching the video last night of, of yourself in hospital, the result of all these cogs coming together was you... Uh, pulling your knee up towards your chest.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
0: To pull the car over. I was listening to it uh, on, on on Bluetooth. I <laughs> had a bit of a moment. I, I, I bawled. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, for our listeners, uh, talk us first of all from hosp- from the hospital bed. You decided that you wanted to try and cure
1: paralysis. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, you know, you, you you'll you'll get this because of who you are and what and what you do. The the idea that human beings shouldn't be sitting down for, the, for, for, the, for even eight hours a day, that would never mind the rest of your life, the idea that uh, your prescription for life is never to move again, that, that just didn't make sen- sense to me, just at a very basic hum- human level. All of the health advice is get up, get moving. And then whenever you become injured with, with any cor- kind of spinal cord injury, however it happens, you go through 3, 6, 12, or 16 months, it in my case, of pretty heavy-duty physiotherapy. So you get this message that, yes, for you, when you're injured, uh, physical exercise and physiotherapy and moving, even if you're paralyzed, is a good thing. And then you get to the end of the hospital system and that's it, it's over. You might get a, a few bits and bobs of, of physio if if you really need it, if you've got some particular spasms. So all of this message, everything I believed in was about moving the, the bits that were, were paralyzed and the bits that weren't paralyzed. And then the services or the, the opportunity just wasn't there. There are no facilities to be able to do that. And I thought, look, Okay even if I am paralyzed which by that stage it was very obvious I was paralyzed even if I'm paralyzed surely moving is a good thing and we had to travel to California to to go to a spinal injuries gym to go through aggressive physical therapy where I was out crawling I was stand uh, with the help of therapists standing with the help of therapists just holding on to a bar the squat rack uh, a guy blocking my knees and then coming up and doing squats in and out of the in and out of the the wheelchair but i think probably in the beginning i was hoping that through neuroplasticity i would make some kind of connections back across the injury side and i'd be able to move a little bit more feel a little bit more but the the overwhelming sense was that if you move and keep the body ready you'll surely be ready for interventions that may come down the line and that's where it was lucky for me um, and I'm, I'm straying into the optimist territory <laughs> here but it was pre- it is pretty lucky to be paralysed at this particular time more than any time in history because the robotic legs appeared in 2012 and the robotic legs are a combination of steel and carbon fibre and aluminium motors at the knees and hips and you strap into them, uh, you press a button and in a gym, in a rehab context, you can stand and walk and we have got We've got a device, I've got a device, we've got another research device in Trinity, we've got uh, an open access device in DCU there, there's, there's one in Cork, there's one up in Donegal, there's one in Belfast. You know, so people are now starting to be able to stand and walk, but it's mechanical, and you're not really doing anything to, to the body
0: so you were getting steps, and I know you counted them. I think yeah. it was over one million steps.
1: Well, I became i as a rower. You see, it's a, it's all <laughs> strokes per strokes per minute minutes that you're out right there, heart rate. So I'm fascinated by the data, and and it was it was steps uh, per fifteen minute blocks for an hour that I was I was focusing on, and it was amazing. You know, st- like, if you can't stand, and you get the, the the chance to stand up just to be upright just to be the way you used to be, it's psychologically, it's hugely empowering. And then, of course, physically, from, you know, digestion's better. Your uh, hip flexors stretch out. Just your flexibility and your mobility improves, even if it doesn't tackle the nervous system issue. And I got got a set of these legs back in Dublin. We started doing research. But the bit that you mentioned, which, which really is, incredibly exciting and very important is electrical stimulation of the spinal cord and we went back to California to UCLA to Los Angeles to test that and the moving my knee to my chest piece was just with a little bit of electrical stimulation of my spine three or four days training and I was able to voluntarily move my legs and I was Simon um, she was really excited by that and I was immediately thinking well this is good but like you know I'm not going to be uh, just lying on my back moving my knee to my chest here you know how can we combine this how can we move this forward and that's where the combination of the two technologies came in
0: but that, I, to, again for our listeners to I'm not even sure that you, they can put themselves in your situation mm. but to be classified as being fully paralyzed to go to take it from there to moving a, a lower limb, yeah, it's just it's 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 mind blowing
1: well it 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 is, and I'm only a you know I'm a guinea pig in the middle of it the 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 robotics company have had hundreds of millions put into that that technology, the electrical stimulation research in its broader sense, tens of millions has got has gone into that. and back to your earlier point. Whenever I started the fundraising, originally it was just to for the kind of capital and ongoing costs of my injury, like to raise money for an adapted van or to put a lift in my house or uh, these sorts of, of things. But over time, we thought, well, how can we contribute to this field? So one option is the kind of old, old style thinking where you say, okay, we need to raise X millions or X tens of millions and we need to give it all to a scientist. And that scientist will surely be the, um, as I think Kaplan Moran says, the campaign Jesus who will fix it all. Um, But in fact, without any expertise, the only thing we could offer was enthusiasm, um, the desire to, uh, to bring people together, to make those connections. And I think what we're trying to kind of Package up and sell sell to uh, philanthropists ar- around the world is that the value and where we're going to make the really big breakthroughs is is not by uh, not by being selfish with our data or science or our ideas, but rather the rather being um, collaborative, uh, being connectors, sharing, and and creating a kind of lattice of expertise. Where we can bring technologies money patients families and everyone together to move this whole thing forward so it's a funny one we don't va- we don't value uh, having a chat making a connection introducing people to others mm-hmm. and in fact irish people are pretty good at it the chat's crucial yeah.
0: Chatting and coffee the whole coffee experience of meeting people and discussing stuff is, is incredibly powerful. But th- that's very much what you did, but through sharing, you brought it all together. So you brought the exosuit and then the electrical stimulation together.
1: Yeah. And created Well it, it, it so so you got you got well, these just these two technologies. You got the exoskeleton company and then there are a few different ones around the world, but they're you know they're in the business of building robots to help people stand and walk or paralyzed, MS, stroke, you know, and they've got to try and make that thing work. You then have, and they did, and they floated in the Stock Exchange as a successful company based out of San Francisco. The electrical stimulation uh, company is very early stage and it's spun out of a university, UCLA in Los Angeles. They're trying to make their science and technology and business work, so they're trying to raise loads of money. So you've got these two incredible groups of people doing brilliant stuff and struggling because it's hard. And they both knew about each other's technology. They both knew that putting it together would be interesting. But it took, uh, it took us as uh, generalists, really knowing nothing, to come in and make that connection, to get them on a conference call, eventually get them in a room, and eventually put... A three-month study together in in los angeles where i walked with the stim stimulation on my back in my robot and then i was able to voluntarily move my legs and then of course from a training point of view it was critical that the robot had advanced to such a point that it was able to and can intelligently do less as i do more so that as i progress and as i do more the robot does less there's a training effect and therefore my muscles can grow, my heart rate can go up, and the robot—it's uh, wrong to say—disappears into the background. Mm-hmm. But that would be the ultimate ambition. And of course, the frustrating thing is that we know this is having a big impact. But four years on, I remain the only person in the world to have done that particular study. So we're we're exercised about get, about getting that back here in Ireland, in America, in Australia, wherever it happens to be. But trying to get that stuff available here in ireland so
0: your hard work knows pretty much no bounds your enthusiasm whether it's going for you know previously for the the south pole or the Gobi desert uh now it's very much for the suit and combining and getting it around the world Hmm. uh so the mark pollock trust was born yeah what's the goal for, for the trust
1: well we we've just relaunched our belief uh and our mission, and our vision this year, and we believe we now believe, firmly believe that we can cure paralysis in our lifetime. And to do it, we are continuing to explore the, this intersection where humans and technology collide, and we're focused on creating collaborations that have never been done before. And both of those things feed into our ultimate ambition to unlock one billion dollars to make that happen and i and i don't mean us going out with buckets to raise a billion dollars i mean by putting that the price tag on curing paralysis at a billion it kind of elevates it beyond any country or any foundation or any university and it says well if you get those guys in switzerland who have got two hundred and uh, 250 million pumping through neurological research and you get those guys together with a uh, with industry or maybe got a valuation of 100 million and a foundation with a big chunk of money you know maybe by coming together you have a chance of doing something exciting so so we really are just uh, using me as a guinea pig we've got exploration and we have co- collaboration as our two big pillars
0: and then talk to me about run in the dark does that tie in with does that tie in with the uh, the trust?
1: So, the team that we the team that we have got in place is kind of like a uh, an agile small special forces unit. I like to think, uh, focused on uh, collaboration, and you know, there's no government funding for for promoting collaboration to for doing these research studies that we do, making the connections that we make and the collaborations that we do, so. Through my speaking and through Run in the Dark, we've been able to raise a pot of money on an annual basis that feeds into funding that team to do the work that we're doing. So, uh, over the years, it's grown to 25,000 people around the world in 50 cities around the world. Anything from 9,000 people in Dublin on the 7th of November this year to maybe got 100 people in Sydney, 50 in Shanghai out in San Francisco we've got some in Brazil but 50 cities around the world starting with Dublin on the 7th the rest of the world on the 14th and uh, people can come and you know be the best they can be whether it's a 5k 10k first timers fastest time whatever it happens to be that by being out there running st- moving for themselves taking part being v- involved in the community they can uh, have a spin-off benefit of helping us cure paralysis in our lifetime
0: and just by taking on basically their own challenge, be it yeah. time, or be it the event or the distance or whatever it may be. Uh, and what's the website for Run in the Dark?
1: Run in the dark, uh, dot org. It's runinthedark.org. And I think I, I've been thinking about about this idea, Carla, of, you know, how do you connect? What is the connection between people out doing their first 5K at Run in the Dark and my attempts to walk in a robot and cure paralysis with electrical stimulation, and the scientists that we work with. And I kind of, you know, trying to pull back, back to this, he, he is a way to live compared with almost anyhow. I said, I think the thing that connects all of this stuff is just an idea of to go out there and try to achieve more, whatever it happens to be, just do a little bit more uh, fitness, diet, running, science, spin out companies uh, impacting people's lives. So we're sort of working with the hashtag achieve more um, to pull all these things together.
0: Fantastic. Mark Pollock, thank you so much for coming into the Real Health podcast. Uh, this has been one of the things that I've been waiting for and hoping for for a very, very long time. So thank you so much for coming in. Folks, um, as ever, this is the Real Health podcast in association with Play Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. Um, I started today's episode with a quote and I'm going to finish it with a quote. Um, I saw it on the TED talk um, that I was watching last night. If you want to have a look at it, you'll see it on TED talks, just uh, presumably put in Mark Holick and you'll find it. Um, and it was a quote from Simone um, at the very end of the talk. And she says very simply this. Acceptance is knowing that grief is a raging river and you have to get, get into it because when you do, it carries you to the next place. It eventually takes you to an open land, somewhere where it will turn out okay in the end. Folks, have a great week and I'll see you next week.
1: Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry.